0: section ten of rational theology and christian philosophy volume one by john tulloch this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter four john Hales of eton religion and dogmatic orthodoxy part two during the period of his residence as a fellow there were two provosts both of them his special friends of marked character and distinction one sir henry seville has been already mentioned he was Hales's patron and friend at oxford where they belonged to the same college merton and worked together at the addition of chrysostom so well known under seville's name after his own transference to eton it was probably his influence as provost that procured hales's later appointment to a fellowship there this is indeed expressly affirmed seville was a man of solid and fine acquirements devoted to science no less than scholarship as his grants to oxford abundantly testify his liberality was on a truly munificent scale His edition of Chrysostom, in eight folio volumes, is said to have cost even then eight thousand pounds, and for the purpose of completing it, he himself visited all the public and private libraries of Britain, and sent learned men for similar research into France, Germany, Italy, and the East. A much older man than Hales, having been born in the middle of the previous century, their relation throughout was probably somewhat of the nature of patron and pupil. But their joint labors on Chrysostom had brought them into very cordial fellowship and their tastes and spirit of thought were in many respects suited to one another but hales's theological as well as personal sympathies found more to engage them in seville's illustrious successor after a brief interval in the provostship of eton college of all who have adorned this high position no one has brought to it more distinction or displayed in it a more wise and exalted mind than sir henry wotton belonging to an accomplished family all the members of which more or less distinguished themselves he had been carefully educated at oxford and then for six years abroad in intercourse with beza isaac casaubon and the most eminent men for learning and all manner of arts footnote walton one of whose charming lives is that of sir henry wotton has nine years but a comparison of dates shows this is a mistake from a letter of date july fifteen ninety two it appears that he had been then abroad three years and about three years later he was at home and appointed secretary to the Earl of Essex. It has been supposed that the mistake had arisen out of a transposition of the figures nine and six. End of footnote. He became both a great German and Italian scholar and an amateur and most excellent judge of painting, sculpture, chemistry, and architecture. His introduction to political life in connection with the famous Earl of Essex, Elizabeth's favorite, was unfortunate, but he escaped from this connection went again abroad, and entered into the confidential service of the Grand Duke of Tuscany. It was while in this service that he was employed in a remarkable mission which prepared the way for his future advancement. Letters having been intercepted by the Grand Duke, which discovered a design of taking away the life of James the Sixth of Scotland, Wotton was sent secretly into that country, disguised as an Italian, obtained a private conference with His Majesty, and, in return for his information, received high marks of favour he departed says walton as true an italian as he came on james's accession to the english throne walton came home was knighted and obtained an important diplomatic appointment as ambassador to the republic of venice a series of similar posts culminating with that of the embassy at the court of vienna occupied him till the year before james's death when he finally returned to england and in sixteen twenty four was appointed provost of eton the statutes of the college requiring the provost to be in holy orders, he resolved to comply with them and was ordained deacon, notwithstanding his advanced years and long political career. Footnote. Born in 1568, he was, of course, when appointed provost of Eton, 56 years of age. End of footnote. This change in his mode of life gave a turn to his whole thoughts, and he betook himself earnestly to the study of divinity and the spiritual exercises becoming his new position. Quote, After his customary public devotions, his use was to retire into his study, and there to spend some hours in reading the Bible and authors in divinity, closing up his meditations with private prayer. This was, for the most part, his employment in the forenoon. But when he was once sat to dinner, then nothing but cheerful thoughts possessed his mind, and those still increased by constant company at his table of such persons as brought thither additions both of learning and pleasure. But some part of most days was usually spent in philosophical conclusions. Nor did he forget... Walton characteristically adds, his innate pleasure of angling, which he would usually call his idle time not idly spent, saying often he would rather live five May months than forty Decembers. Footnote. Walton's life. The place where Sir Henry Walton and Isaac Walton were accustomed to angle in company is known as the Black Potts. It is close to the college, in a bend of the Thames, where the southwestern railway now crosses the river. End of footnote. To his divinity studies, Watton brought the varied experience and wide thoughtfulness which he had acquired in intercourse with learned and religious men throughout Europe. He had seen what Christian good there may be in very different forms of religious faith and worship. And so, like Hales, he disliked greatly the prevalent spirit of religious contentiousness. Footnote. He directed the following inscription to be put upon his tombstone hic iacet huius sententii primus author disputandi pruritus ecclesiarum scabies nomen alias quere numerous stories have been preserved of his catholicity of feeling and the successful repartee with which he would retort on troublesome questioners to one that asked him whether a papist may be saved he replied you may be saved without knowing that look to yourself to another who was railing against the papists he gave this advice pray sir forbear till you have studied the points better for the wise italians have this proverb he that understands amiss concludes worse and take heed of thinking the farther you go from the church of rome the nearer you are to god Close quote. but he had no less something pointed to say to the disputatious romanist being at rome a pleasant priest invited him one evening to hear their vesper music at church the priest seeing sir henry stand obscurely in a corner sent to him by a boy of the choir the question written on a small piece of paper where was your religion to be found before luther to which question sir henry presently underwrit my religion was to be found then where yours is not to be found now in the written word of god his testimony to arminius is as creditable to his christian fairness as anything recorded of him In my travel toward Venice, as I passed through Germany, I rested almost a year at Leiden, where I entered into an acquaintance with Arminius, then the professor of divinity in that university, a man much talked of in this age, which is made up of opposition and controversy. And indeed, if I mistake not Arminius in his expressions, as so weak a brain as mine is may easily do, then I know I differ from him in some points, yet I profess my judgment of him to be, that he was a man of most rare learning, and I know him to be of a most strict life, and of a most meek spirit. These stories, and others of a similar import, are told us on the best authority by Walton, and all serve to show how entirely Sir Henry Watton must have been a man after Hales's own heart. Their intercourse could not fail to have been frequent and pleasant in those afternoons which the provost was wont to give to his friends, and such persons as brought additions of learning and pleasure. He was a great lover of his neighbors and there was no one like-minded who could enter into his thoughts or share his learning or care for his state like his erudite acute and bright-witted colleague. Hales may have learned something of his breadth and freedom of opinion from one to whose experience and knowledge of the world he would be disposed to defer. Watton's cast of mind and large charity would certainly help the development of his own thoughts. Their intercourse is said to have been particularly frequent in the latter part of Watton's life when he became more retired and contemplative. In one of those visits, when he felt his end drawing near, he is said to have addressed Hales to the following purpose, quote, I have in my passage to my grave met with most of those joys of which a discursive soul is capable. Nevertheless, in the voyage I have not always floated on the calm sea of content, but have often met with cross winds and storms, and with many troubles of mind and temptations to evil. Yet Almighty God hath by His grace prevented me from making shipwreck of faith and a good conscience, the thought of which is now the joy of my heart, and I most humbly praise Him for it. And, my dear friend, I now see that I draw near my harbour of death, that harbour that will secure me from all the future storms and waves of this restless world. And I praise God I am willing to leave it, and expect a better, that world wherein dwelleth righteousness, and I long for it. Close quote. Watton died in the autumn of sixteen thirty nine and before this hales had in some degree emerged from his retirement in connection not only with the london litterature whose feasts he occasionally graced but with the great church questions of his time his famous tract concerning schism and schismatics was certainly written before this although not printed till some time later sixteen forty two there is no reason indeed to doubt the statement that it was written about sixteen thirty six at chillingworth's request to assist him in the composition of the religion of protestants Absurd as are Wood's comments in connection with the statement. It has the air of being intended for such a purpose, and Hales himself says that it was written for the use of a private friend. But there are at least two other and very characteristic writings of Hales which belong to this important period, namely his tracts concerning the power of the keys, and on the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. The former bears the date of 1637, and the latter, which is particularly interesting, must be concluded to be as early, if not earlier it was evidently written in the heart of the romanist controversy which was then violently agitating england and more or less engrossing all inquiring minds like all his writings at this time it was elicited from him by the application of some correspondent or friend whose name is not disclosed the following significant allusion to the influence of the romish teachers closes the tract if you shall favour me so much as to carefully read what i have carefully written you shall find at least in those points you occasioned me to touch upon sufficient ground to plant yourself strongly against all discourse of the romish corner creepers which they use for the seducing of unstable souls quote. besides these acknowledged writings of hales at this period there are two brief latin treatises which have been attributed to him one of as early a date as sixteen twenty eight and the other published in sixteen thirty three the first bears the general title anonimi dissertatio de passe et concordia ecclesiae and the second is spoken of as the Brevis Disquisitio. Footnote. The full title of this tract is as follows. Brevis Disquisitio an et quomodo vulgo dicti evangelici Pontificios, ac nominatim val magni de catholicorum credendi regula judicium, solide atque evidenter refutare queant. Maizot has examined with patience, and not a little critical acumen, the external evidence as to the authorship of these tracts, and concludes decidedly not only that they are not the production of Hales, but that they belong to the writers to which they are respectively attributed in Sandius's Bibliotheca Antitrinitariorum, the Dissertatio de Pace, etc., having been written by a Polish knight, Samuel Przopcovius, and the Brevis Disquisitio, etc., by Joachimus Stegmanus, a celebrated Socinian minister both pamphlets may be found by the english reader admirably translated in the second volume of the phoenix a collection of rare pamphlets chiefly of the seventeenth century End of footnote. the question of the authorship of these treatises at least of the second of them is important in its bearing on hales's general position and his honesty as a religious thinker wood may be considered the chief and in a sense the only definite authority for attributing these writings to our author he enumerates them among the things written by him but not to insist upon the suspicious source on which he evidently relied in making his statement the obvious prejudices and frequent inaccuracy of the worthy author of the atene oxonienses deprive his evidence of any value on such a point extended footnote the original source of the rumour which connected hale's with the bravest disquisitio seems to have been ecclesiastical gossip in the heyday of laud's power revived by halen his biographer after the restoration and emphasized by a somewhat reckless and coarse writer dr samuel parker who became bishop of oxford in the reign of james the second parker whom we may afterwards meet in the course of our history in connection with the cambridge platonic school had a famous controversy in sixteen seventy three regarding the separatists from the church of england with andrew marvel milton's friend in which the latter introduced hales's name with commendation and appealed to his tract on schism he ventured to contrast the spirit of the writer with that of parker and to add I could not but admire that majesty and beauty which sits upon the forehead of masculine truth and generous honesty, but no less detest the deformity of falsehood disguised in all its ornaments. Rehearsal transposed, page 134, 135. The comparison seems to have excited Parker's coarse temper, and in his reply, a reproof to the rehearsal transposed, he fell foul of Hales as well as of his admirer. The next time, he said, you nose the Church of England with Mr. Hales, let the Disquisitio Brevis be your book. Wood speaks of this pen combat between Parker and Marvel as briskly managed, with much smart cutting and satirical wit on both sides, but he admits that it was generally thought even by many of those who were otherwise favorers of Parker's cause that he, Parker, through a too loose and unwary handling of the debate, though in a brave flourishing and lofty style, laid himself too open to the severe strokes of his sneering adversary, and that the odds and victory laid on Marvel's side atene oxonienses c six nineteen quoted by footnote. the examination of the tracts themselves is sufficient to convince every student of hales's writings that he is not their author and beyond all question not the author of the brevis disquisitio which chiefly warrants the charges of socinianism made by wood and repeated by others with a certain likeness of tone in speaking of the general subject of reason a likeness after all more superficial than real as the writer of the disquisition lacks the finer temper and balance of mind with which our author always expresses himself on this subject there is otherwise no resemblance whatever betwixt the writers the dogmatic attitude of the author of the latin treatise is a clearly defined one equally opposed to lutherans calvinists and papists he distinctly separates himself from the two former those who follow luther and calvin for their guides in religion as well as from the latter and objects not only to the superstitions of popery but to the distinctive tenets of evangelical protestantism the trinity the incarnation the meritorious satisfaction of christ and even original sin and infant baptism as unreasonable and unscriptural this is entirely inconsistent with the spirit of hales and the characteristic tendencies of his mode of thought The earlier treatise on the Peace and Concord of the Church might more possibly be conceived to have proceeded from his pen. It is in some respects a beautiful and striking composition, and in its general character highly consistent with his enlightened and tolerant Protestantism. It has nothing of the hard, dogmatic, and somewhat flippant tone with which the brevis disquisitio opposes orthodox dogmatism, but it too bears clear internal marks of foreign authorship it is evidently written by one with the miseries of the thirty years war before his eyes and with more information as to the state of religious opinion and religious parties on the continent than hales even with the advantage of his residence at holland can well be supposed to have while an auditor at the synod of dort he was still we have seen a calvinist and although he may have afterwards bid calvin good-night he never took up a line of definite antagonism to calvinism and it may be said with confidence would never have written regarding the doctrine of predestination as the author of this dissertation does still less was he likely to do this anonymously at so early a date after his return from holland in sixteen twenty eight and in the first writing deliberately given by him to the world we are freed therefore from the necessity of examining these writings and we might be excused from considering the charge founded on them did it not crop out so frequently in the literature of the century and reappear in ignorant comment on our author's acknowledged writings, such as the tract on Schism. Aubrey, of course, repeats it in his usual gossiping manner. He, Hales, was one of the first Socinians in England, I think the first, is his confident statement, and Professor Masson quotes Aubrey apparently without any consciousness that he is doing Hales a gross injustice. Extended footnote. Aubrey, 2, sixty-three, eighteen, thirteen, Life of Milton, 1, 500. There can be no doubt that it is a real injustice to writers of acknowledged theological eminence, and who have been at pains to make their religious views and position clear to the world, to have talk like that of Aubrey's quoted against them. In matters of religious opinion, Aubrey's judgment is of no more value than that of any social gossip-monger would be in our own day. The phrase, the first Socinian in England, seems to have been a favorite catchphrase with him, borrowed probably from his gossiping circle he applies it in an exactly similar manner and with the same wantonness to falkland although falkland we have seen placed the encouragement even of arminianism on the same level with that of popery as a charge against the laudian bishops the worth of aubrey's statements about socinianism may be guessed by his further statements in the same page almost in the same breath hales was something of a familist as well as a socinian if he is to be believed for he adds I have heard his nephew, Mr. Sloper, say that he much loved to read Stephanus, who was a familist, I think, that first wrote of that sect of the family of love. He was mightily taken with it, and was wont to say that sometime or other these fine notions would take in the world. Even Wood, whose own accuracy and insight are frequently to be questioned, speaks of Aubrey, and words quoted by Professor Masson, as a credulous person, roving and maggoty-headed, who was in the habit of stuffing his letters with folleries and misinformations. End of footnote. The charge, moreover, recurs in the case of Chillingworth in a still more definite and flagrant form. It thus forces itself upon the attention of the historian of the rational school of thought in the seventeenth century, and deserves a passing notice. The truth is that there is not the slightest ground for suspecting either Hales or Chillingworth of Socinianism, beyond the fact that they argue vigorously and directly for the claims of reason in the interpretation of scripture and the criticism of dogma to carry out in this manner protestantism to its legitimate conclusions and vindicate consistently the right of private judgment has always been adjudged by certain limited dogmatists supposed heroes of protestantism but really traitors to its essential principles to partake of the nature of socinianism as if it were a matter of course that the conclusions of scripture and reason must be opposed and that to rest finally in the arbitration of enlightened christian thought must be to rest in something short of or contrary to the conclusions of evangelical theology But this is to be unfair at once to evangelical theology, and to reason. We may surely ask, with a candid Roman Catholic author of the seventeenth century, quote, Does the making private reason judge of the true sense of Scripture infer that neither Christ nor the Holy Ghost are God, that the pains of hell are not eternal, that separate souls have no being, or at least no perception, etc.? God forbid! For then how many innocent persons would be guilty of blasphemies unawares to themselves? Then not only Mr. Chillingworth, but Dr. Stillingfleet. And besides them, God knows how many more in London and in the universities of England would be Socinians. As to Hales, the charge of Socinianism is peculiarly unwarrantable, for he has left us, of his own free thought, his confession of the Trinity, which is as clear, full, and explicit as any Trinitarian can desire. We cannot quote the whole of it, but the following statements will be allowed to leave his orthodoxy beyond question God is one, yet so one that he admits of distinction and so admits of distinction that he still retains unity. As he is one, so we call him God, the Deity, the Divine Nature, and other names of the same signification. As he is distinguished, so we call him Trinity, Persons, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. In this Trinity there is one essence. The one essence is God, which, with his relation that it doth generate or beget, makes the person of the Father. The same essence, with this relation, that it is begotten, maketh the person of the Son the same essence with this relation that it proceedeth maketh the person of the holy ghost. Close quote. it is in connection with this question of orthodoxy and his tract on schism that we find our author brought into significant connection with laud in 1638. halen's account of his visit to the archbishop is extremely graphic and so far characteristic of the two men but like many other graphic stories it is probably more interesting than accurate. it is introduced with an allusion to the brevis disquisitio which appears to have been the foundation of all subsequent statements connecting hales's name with this treatise it was ascribed to him it is said in common speech but halen does not venture on his own authority to say that he knew anything of the authorship of hales himself he speaks with the generous admiration with which almost all mention him he was a man he says of infinite reading and no less ingenuity free of discourse and as communicative of his knowledge as the celestial bodies of their light and influences such a man it might have occurred to halen was not likely to insert cunningly some of the principal socinian tenets in a discourse really and professedly on another subject the tract on schism although not printed at this time had passed from hand to hand in written copies and evidently excited much attention both amongst hales's friends who are spoken of as our great masters of wit and reason and the ecclesiastical authorities the tone of it must have been far from pleasing to laud It struck, in fact, at the root of his whole system of church authority, but he could not, even if he had been disposed, act harshly towards one who was so intimately associated with Chillingworth, his own friend, and, moreover, to do him justice, he seems to have had no disposition to do so. He hoped rather, as Halen says, that he might gain the man whose abilities he was well acquainted with when he lived in Oxford. Accordingly, he sent for him to Lambeth and had a long conference with him, thus described by his biographer. Quote, about nine of the clock in the morning he came to know his grace's pleasure who took him along with him into his garden commanding that none of his servants should come at him upon any occasion there they continued to discourse till the bell rang to prayers and after prayers were ended till the dinner was ready and after that too till the coming in of the lord conway and some other persons of honour put a necessity upon some of his servants to give him notice how the time had passed away so in they came high-coloured and almost panting for want of breath enough to show that there had been some heats between them not then fully cooled it was my chance to be there that day and i found hales very glad to see me in that place as being himself a mere stranger to it and unknown to all he told me afterwards that he found the archbishop whom he knew before for a nimble disputant to be as well versed in books as business that he had been ferreted by him from one hole to another till there was none left to afford him any further shelter that he was now resolved to be orthodox and to declare himself a true son of the Church of England, both for doctrine and discipline. Close quote. Such is Halen's story, and we must judge of its credibility according to our knowledge of the persons concerned. Footnote: Clarendon's description of the same visit deserves to be placed beside that of Halen, and probably gives a more accurate account of what really passed. Laud, he says, quote, sent for Mr. Hales, whom, when they had both lived in the University of Oxford, he had known well and told him that he had in truth believed him to be long since dead and chid him very kindly for having never come to him having been of his old acquaintance then asked him whether he had lately written a short discourse of schism and whether he was of that opinion which that discourse implied he told him that he had for the satisfaction of a private friend who was not of his mind a year or two before writ such a small tract without any imagination that it would be communicated and that he believed it did not contain anything that was not agreeable to the judgment of the primitive fathers upon which the archbishop debated with him upon some expressions of irenaeus and the most ancient fathers and concluded with saying that the time was very apt to set new doctrines on foot of which the wits of the age were too susceptible and that there could not be too much care taken to preserve the peace and unity of the church and from thence asked him of his condition and whether he wanted anything and the other answering that he had enough and wanted or desired no addition so dismissed him with great courtesy close quote Mizeau is very indignant at its misrepresentations, and sets forth at length the grounds on which he conceives a man like Halen is not to be trusted in his account of such a matter. He was a violent sacerdotalist, and constant asserter of the church's right, like the subject of his biography. He had also much of the blind confidence and narrow intensity of spirit characteristic of his class, which frequently passes with others, and even with themselves, for spiritual zeal. Of Hales's mode of thought, and of the real significance of his attitude on the subject of the church, he had evidently no conception. Such men never have, of anything which transcends the bonds of party or the lines of accustomed tradition. It would be almost certain, therefore, even if we had only his own story, that he had misinterpreted the natural and complimentary deference of Hales's remarks into an expression of his submission to the supreme superiority of the archbishop's arguments. Hales, moreover, was a wit, and may have delighted in playing with a man like Halen, Whose mind would not readily catch the subtler aspects of a subject in reporting what passed between him and the primate he may have put his own case very much at a disadvantage there might seem to him humour as well as humility in representing himself as overcome by his grace's searching logic he may have even jocularly owned that he was henceforth resolved to be orthodox and a good son of the church as good as halen himself but we have happily the means of testing to what extent hales submitted or in any degree owned himself in the wrong on this occasion after his interview he addressed a letter to laud on the subject of their conversation or as the letter bears upon occasion of the tract concerning schism in which he acknowledges regret that what he had written had given offence and professes his desire to repair any mischief that may have arisen from a scribbled paper dropped from so worthless and inconsiderable a hand as his the apologetic tone of this letter is not to be admired it is altogether too deprecatory It would have been much better if he had stood up manfully for his abortive discourse, as he calls it, and not have spoken of any of its statements as the issues of unfortunate inquiry over which the sponge might be passed. But, after all, he nowhere recalls any of the principles he had laid down. There is nothing throughout of the nature of a recantation suggested by Halen, and caught up and repeated affirmatively by subsequent writers. Hallam agrees strongly that there is no evidence of Hales's recantation, although we cannot say with him that his letter is full as bold as his treatise on schism the story he adds is one of halen's many willful falsehoods and the idea of laud having the superiority of hale's in argument is ludicrous considering the relative abilities of the two men constitutional history of england two seventy seven sixteenth edition End of footnote. and so far as even his tone is concerned it is impossible not to recognize in it something of that humorous irony which we suppose to have lain under his conversation with halen he apologizes for the style of his tract as in some things over familiar and subrustic, rustic and sometimes more pleasant than needed and sometimes more sour and satirical but his grace is to be pleased to remember what the liberty of a letter might entice him to and that he was by genius open and uncantilous, and therefore some pardon might be afforded to harmless freedom and gaiety of spirit Yet all the while he is conscious of a higher spirit, and in a noble passage speaks of the earnestness and single-mindedness with which he has sought the truth. Like many a man, he was willing to concede for himself any deference to existing authority. He would gladly live at peace, but he felt at the same time the instinctive necessity of a true mind only to yield to what he felt to be the truth. For the pursuit of truth, he says, quote, Hath been my only care ever since I first understood the meaning of the word for this i have forsaken all hopes all friends all desires which might bias me and hinder me from driving right at what i aimed for this i have spent my money my means my youth my age and all i have that i might remove from myself that censure of tertullian suo vitio quisquid ignorat if with all this cost and pains my purchase is but error i may safely say to err hath cost me more than it has many to find the truth and truth itself shall give me this testimony at last that if i have missed of her it is not my fault but my misfortune this glimpse of hales in connection with laud is almost the only occasion in which he can be said to emerge into the light as a churchman during those troubled and ominous years which preceded the great outbreak his it must be confessed was a nature little fitted for conflict or for carrying forward in the face of opposition a cause however dear to him the idea of ecclesiastical turmoil of the brawls grown from religion, was hateful to his whole soul, and on no account would he have added to them. He had confidence in the quiet growth of higher thought. He had none, apparently, in party action or agitation, even for the higher side. From this time forward, therefore, he may be said to disappear from view. It is to be remembered that even now he was no longer young. At the time of his interview with Laud he was fifty-four years of age. In the following year he accepted the only church preferment that seems ever to have been offered to him a canonry at windsor footnote. according to clarendon who calls the preferment a prebendary of windsor the archbishop could not quote, without great difficulty persuade him to accept it and he did accept it rather to please him than himself because he really believed he had enough before Close quote. End of footnote. but he had hardly entered on his duties when the storm came And for many years afterwards as wave after wave of revolution broke upon the church that he loved and the college where he had lived so pleasantly amongst his books there is hardly any trace of him all that is known is that he was driven from his offices and his residence in the college and reduced to great penury yet we may be sure that in so reflective and generous a nature his own straits were by no means the worst that he endured in those years the miseries of his country and the rapid loss of all his friends in the wretched struggle must have inflicted upon him still deeper pangs one by one they perished within a brief period suckling in exile and disgrace then the blameless falkland and lastly within a few months chillingworth the times were very hard and it is somewhat pitiful to think of the loneliness as well as the poverty of the aged scholar he had been used to say in his prosperous days that he thought he should never die a martyr playfully alluding to his lack of zeal and the comprehensiveness of his theological opinions. But he seems to have suffered scarcely less than the severities of martyrdom. He was left alone without friends, or nearly so, and even at length without books. Footnote. A kind lady in the neighborhood of Eton, the Lady Salter, is said by Aubrey to have shown him attention in his last years after his sequestration. He was very welcome to her ladyship, says Aubrey, and spent much of his time there. End of footnote. Quote. He was soon forced to dispose of the only thing left which could afford him some satisfaction in the world. I mean, one of the best collections of books that a person of his station ever enjoyed. All that his charity and his generosity had allowed him to spare, he had constantly employed towards the completing of it. Clarendon also mentions his fine collection of books. QUOTE. A greater and better collection than was to be found in any other private library that I have seen. As he had sure read more, and carried more about him in his excellent memory than any man I ever knew, my Lord Falkland only accepted, who, I think, sided him. Close quote. End of footnote. But the same charitable and generous temper that had prevented his acquiring any other estate besides those books, would not permit him to keep long the produce that had arisen from the selling of them. He shared it with several ministers, scholars, and others, who had been also deprived of their substance, whereby this resource soon failed him he might have found it supplied by a gentleman who invited him to come to his house had he not declined to accept that generous offer he rather chose to take upon him the education of a youth who lived near eton but the fury of the ruling party would not suffer him to continue in that family so that he at last retired to eton and lodged in the house of a widow whose husband had been his servant in this obscure retreat he was reduced to extreme want and a celebrated author andrew Marvel continues my zoe very justly observes that it is not one of the least ignominies of that age that so eminent a person should have been by the iniquity of the times reduced to those necessities under which he lived Close some few months before his death his friend mr Farindon found him in this retreat Footnote. Farringdon, or Farringdon, as the name is sometimes written, was one of those moderate Episcopalian divines, and who, though ejected from his vicarage at the commencement of the Civil War, found employment by abstaining from the use of the formularies of the Church. He became minister of St. Mary Magdalene, Milk Street. He was an admirable preacher, and held in high esteem. End of footnote. His lodgings were mean, he had only a few books of devotion in his chamber, the remnant of his magnificent library, and, for money, about seven or eight shillings, and besides, said he, I doubt I am indebted for my lodging. Yet his temper was gravely cheerful, and he was able to offer his friend some refreshment. After a slight and very homely dinner, suitable to the lodgings, some discourse passed between them concerning their old friends and the black and dismal aspect of the times. Close quote at last he asked his friend to walk out with him to the churchyard where after some communications as to his circumstances he added when i die which i hope is not far off for i am weary of this uncharitable world i desire you to see me buried in that place of the churchyard pointing to the place but why not in the church asked mr farendon with the provost sir henry wotton and the rest of your friends and predecessors because says he i am neither the founder of it nor have i been the benefactor to it nor shall i ever now be able to be so i am satisfied this is the last glimpse we get of him he died at eton on the nineteenth of may sixteen fifty six and was buried according to his desire in plain and simple manner without any sermon or ringing the bell or calling the people together so he had enjoined in his will which is a very quaint and characteristic document it is hardly necessary to sum up the features of hales's character we can readily realize from the whole tenor of his life as well as of his writings the picture suggested by clarendon of a modest sensitive yet profound and discerning spirit hating religious controversy yet apt and keen in religious argument when once engaged in it honest and open-minded to a fault yet with a great power of reserve in him before the unwise and unreflective loving peace yet detesting tyranny and severe to himself while kind and charitable in all his thoughts of others he was a very hard student to the last according to wood and a great faster, and though a person of wonderful knowledge, yet he was so modest as to be patiently contented to hear the disputes of persons at table and those of small abilities without interposing or speaking a word till desired. Quote. He was, says another authority, Bishop Pearson, of a nature so kind, so sweet, so courting all mankind, of an affability so prompt, so ready to receive all conditions of men, that I conceive it near as easy a task for any one to become so knowing as so obliging. There is an interesting story preserved of his special appreciation of Shakespeare's genius, which should not be forgotten. He is reported to have said in the course of those ingenious conversations which he had with Sir John Suckling, Ben Jonson, and others, that if any topic was produced finely treated by any of the ancient poets, he would undertake to show something upon the same subject at least as well written by Shakespeare. Footnote: The story is given by Rowe in his account of Shakespeare's life and quoted in the notes to Mizot's Life of Hales, page 60. It is also told in a still stronger form by Dryden in his Essay of Dramatic Poesy, page 32, 1693. But neither Rowe nor Dryden mention the authority on which he gives the story. End of footnote. In personal appearance he is said by those who remembered and were well acquainted with him to have had the most ingenious countenance they ever saw. It was sanguine, cheerful, and full of air. His stature was small but well proportioned, and his motion quick and nimble. "'Aubrey, who saw him at his retired lodging at Eton shortly before his death, and who may be safely trusted for personal characteristics, speaks of him as, quote, a pretty little man, sanguine, of a cheerful countenance, very gentle and courteous. I was received by him with much humanity. He was in a kind of violet-coloured cloth gown with buttons and loops. He wore not a black gown, and was reading Thomas Kempis. It was within a year before he deceased. He loved Canary, but moderately to refresh his spirits. He had a bountiful mind.' altogether a pleasant picture of a large thoughtful affable and devout soul whom adversity had not soured and whose piety blended with without absorbing or discolouring the genial warmth of his humanity End of chapter four part two